everybody, and welcome back to another edition of the Stars and Stripes Cricket Podcast presented by Dream Cricket. I'm your host, Peter Delapena, and on today's episode, we have star bowler for the USA Women's National Team and also a member of the Southern Vipers in the Kia Super League as well as the Southern Brave in the inaugural edition of the 100, Tara Norris. Tara is somebody who's been around the world for family reasons and for cricket reasons, born in Philadelphia, but spent some time growing up in mainland Europe and then found her way into cricket when her family returned back to their roots in England. We'll get to hear about Tara's journey into cricket and into the USA women's national team where she recently made her debut for the USA women in Mexico playing a starring role in the USA women's team championship run at the ICC America's women's T20 World Cup qualifier that took place in October. And coming up later in November, Tara is going to be leading the USA bowling attack in Zimbabwe at the women's 50 over World Cup qualifier and already Tara has had a very pivotal role in one of the warm-up matches that USA defeated the Netherlands by four wickets. Tara with incredible figures of four wickets for three runs in a blistering opening spell to set up USA victory. A lot of people are hoping that she can replicate that when the tournament begins proper with USA taking on Pakistan, Bangladesh, Thailand, and Zimbabwe in group play. Tournament starts on November 21st. USA's first match is on November 23rd. We'll get to all that and more with Tara, whose interview we've split up into two parts. We had a lot to cover. The first chunk of her interview will be in this episode, and then part two will be on the eve of the 50 over World Cup qualifier in Zimbabwe. So stay tuned for that. But for now, we've got part one coming up. Before we get to that first, I want to say thank you to our newest Patreon subscriber, Steve Weiss. Steve is a hardcore USA fanatic follows the fortunes of the USA national team. He's based in upstate New York in Schenectady. Schenectady is much closer to the state capital in Albany. And Steve is active in local cricket there and he's an avid follower of the USA national team. And now he's a Patreon subscriber. And if you haven't already, I encourage everybody out there who's following the podcast and listening to the podcast to subscribe on Patreon to help make the podcast run on a regular basis. So thank you again to everybody else who has also come on board. I also want to thank our title sponsors for the Stars and Stripes Cricket Podcast, Dream Cricket, and also Moose to Cricket Stadium, the first and original turf wicket facility in the state of Texas. For more information, call 713-534-2195. That's Moose to Cricket Stadium in Pearland, Texas. Today's guest on the Stars and Stripes Cricket Podcast, presented by Dream Cricket, is Tara Norris, who just made her USA national team debut at the ICC America's Women's T20 World Cup qualifier in Mexico. Tara, welcome to the show. Hello. Thank you very much for having me. Thank you for coming on. Appreciate it. <laughs> so what was your experience like? Let's start off with coming out of Mexico. You've had a couple of days to digest not yeah. just the on-field experience, but off the field. Your first experience being part of the national team. What was it like? Yeah, crazy. Yeah, I've had a few days to reflect um, and get over whatever Mexico sickness bug that everyone had. Um, <laughs> dodgy water, I'm not sure. But yeah, I'm reflection. Um, an amazing trip. Really, really privileged to be a part of it and to meet other girls and actually play out there. Um, so yeah, lots of positives to take away, lots of work-ons and hopefully moving forward to the, the 50 over qualifiers. And those will be coming up 
at the end of November, just before Thanksgiving, for everybody in the U.S., USA will be playing starting November 21st in Zimbabwe, the 50 overall cup qualifier. USA is taking on Bangladesh, Pakistan, Thailand, and Zimbabwe on their half of the draw in the 10-team tournament. And it's the first time that USA will be playing 50-over cricket, women's cricket, since 2011. People can believe exciting. it. It's very exciting. What are your thoughts before before we go on about some of your background? What are your thoughts just generally about getting an opportunity, not just 20 over qualifier, but now 50 over qualifier and getting a chance to take on some of the teams you're going to be able to take on? Yeah, I think, Brent, I think the Mexico trip was probably a warm up um, in terms of probably oppositions will be playing. Um, I think as a group, we'll definitely be challenged. Definitely the underdogs going into it, I think. But sometimes it's good to be the underdogs. It means you've got something to prove. And we've obviously got some momentum behind us from the T20 stuff. So if we can shift that and look, the, the group are amazing. There's a lot of passion. There's a lot of love for the game. I'm really talented young side. So I'm hopeful. I think, you know, it'll be a good competition regardless. Obviously, if you got through, that would just be insane. But I think there's a lot of learning to go from this group and the tournament will be, will be one to remember for sure. Fingers crossed. Absolutely. All the things you just said. Now, your backstory, which I'm sure a lot of people are curious about who haven't gotten a chance to meet you. You were born in Philadelphia. Correct. Yeah. But from talking to you and also listening to another podcast that was done by Wisden, you moved quite early on with your family to Spain and your dad, your parents were both involved in the pharmaceutical industry. And that's how you were your family was based in Eastern Pennsylvania to begin with, but then yeah. your dad's work, uh, your parents' work took you from Philadelphia to Spain and then eventually back to England. Your dad, you finally referred to as being from the borough, Middlesbrough. The borough, the mighty borough, yeah. Can't believe you dropped that in there. So, so, happy. so take us through kind of the early part of your existence because I think your journey is a very fascinating one from the standpoint of it's it's a very unique one in terms of how you wound your way into cricket so yeah. what were the early years like for you yeah I mean yeah I don't remember much from America if I'm being honest um my childhood was brought up in Spain in Barcelona uh living by the sea pretty much getting picked up from school and going straight to the beach pretty much every day that's what I remember my childhood being um very sunny um very Mediterranean lifestyle living I uh, went to an international school and then yeah about 2006 we moved to the UK the bribe the bribery well we moved my dad's job obviously in the pharmaceutical industry the bribery was to move um and we'd get a dog so me and my sisters obviously were all in favor so yeah we moved in 2006 and been there over 10 years and still got no dog actually so um yeah that's kind of the background we moved we obviously had family in the UK um, I guess it made sense and just moved my dad's job. But yeah, amazing childhood. Um, we haven't been back to Philly since, but yeah, unfortunately, I don't remember much of it. Your dad is a clever salesman. Yeah, yeah, he really is. <laughs> got everybody to move back. Still no dog. Yeah, he's, yeah, he's in the wrong industry. You got to you gotta talk to him about it. You got to get that squared away, Tara. From Philadelphia to Spain, you said Barcelona, and then back to England. At what point did you start playing cricket? Because I'd imagine you were playing a whole lot of other sports before then. Yeah. Yeah. And no, I, funny enough, cricket wasn't on the, the school agenda in Spain. Um, it was a lot of swimming. I'm a big tennis fan. So I played tennis at school, loved watching tennis, uh, a lot of football. I mean, I've got two older sisters who are completely different to me. They're not sporty at all, nor are they competitive. So growing up, it was, it was me just pretty much just playing in the backyard on my own or with my dad. 
yeah, at, at school, so when I went to the UK, um, it was kind of a way of me to make friends, really, uh, a bit of an outside, a bit of an outcast. So I joined an after-school club um, of cricket, and I had no idea what the sport was, had never heard of it in my life. Even though my dad's a big cricket fan, we, I don't remember him watching cricket as a kid uh, until I started playing. So, yeah, I joined the after-school club. I was the only girl there. It didn't seem to bother me. I really enjoyed it. Picked it up really well. Had decent hand-eye coordination, uh, maybe from tennis. I'm not sure. And I just kept on going to after school clubs because I loved it. And eventually they kind of pushed me into a girls club, uh, a local club down the road. And then the club kind of pushed me towards county trials. And I pretty much went to the same um, transition as most young kids do. All the county age groups, uh, some England pathway stuff. Um, and then to a professional contract as of last summer. All in a nutshell, really. For people who are not aware, so when you came to England and this whole age group pathway that you've been on has been with Sussex. Yes. So when you came back to England from Barcelona, where exactly did you and your family locate? Yeah, so my parents had previously lived uh, in Loughborough. That's where they met. And then I've got family mostly in the south coast. But saying that I've got relatives that live up north, that's where my dad's from. Uh, I've still got some Italian family back in Italy. But yeah, we moved down south to Sussex area. The schools are really good there and that kind of thing. And it's close to family. So yeah, moved to a little town called Horsham, uh, played for Horsham Cricket Club. And I'm sad, in fact, I still remember there. I try and play one game every year for the club. And eventually as the years have gone by, I've kind of moved more east way towards Br Brighton and Eastbourne. So you dropped in there. You lived in Spain. You lived in the US, obviously. Your mom's side of the family is Italian. How many yes, languages yeah. do you speak? Well, English obviously being my first. Um, I can speak in English, um, sorry, Italian and Spanish. It's not fluent, but it's it just about gets me by. I should be better, but um, yeah, if I'm in Spain, I, I try and speak as much Spanish as possible. Uh, if I speak my Italian relatives, I, uh, I try and speak Italian with them. But um, yeah, no, it should be better. But yeah, I try and speak as much as I can. It's probably better than my Italian. I took a few <laughs> years in college and yeah, I, I can count to 10. I can probably count to 100 and... Like I, I, like I told you in Mexico. That's all you need. That's all you need. <laughs> yeah. Give me some money. Uno, do a trade. Yeah, you'll be fine in the bank. How, how much of your Spanish were you able to recall to put to use in Mexico on tour? You know, actually, it came out, it came out all right, actually. Um, I ended up being a bit of a translator for the girls. Some of them study at school, but yeah, it was quite funny trying to order things at the hotel or the restaurant. So yeah, I was kind of the go-to, or a few of us were the go-to, or trying to just translate um, just sort of simple basic stuff well I got yelled at actually at one point by a couple of the teenagers because one day during a post-match interview I asked them how is it on tour are you able to hang out with the players and they thought oh well the COVID protocol we don't get to interact too much but at the pool and other stuff on the off days we do get to bond a little bit with some of the other players and I said oh how good is their English and one of the one of your teammates said what do you mean how good is their English do you think we can't speak Spanish we take it in high oh, school no. like we know how to speak Spanish. We can speak Spanish to them. Don't be such a snob, Peter. <laughs> Some of them are actually decent. Um, yeah, no, it was definitely more of an English conversation. The girls, all the other girls, Brazilian and Argentinians, their English was flawless. So, yeah, put us to shame, really. We should have made more of an effort. You're still able to order food. I, I was, I was uh, mildly surprised that I didn't embarrass myself too much in terms of when I was at least trying to order restaurant food I was I was shocked at how much I could recall actually because my mom yeah. was a high school Spanish teacher for 35, right, okay. 40 years and I took Spanish in school and she told me before I left don't embarrass the family 
So hopefully, Mamadel. Don't kinda... stain, don't stain the family name. So exactly. Yeah. Hopefully, I didn't let you down. So, <laughs> all right, back to the cricket. So you're in the Sussex pathway, and one of the things you brought up also tied into cricket, which I always appreciate is your tennis background talking about that growing up playing quite a lot of tennis growing up I think that's really generous my tennis background it's it's really not that deep (laughs) thank you but I well I always feel there's this mythical caricature almost of what a cricketer is supposed to be especially if you're transitioning as an American and I know you've got quite a uh, varied background in terms of your life experiences that led you to the U.S. national team, but for some of the players, whether it's male or female, there's this stare. Oh, go get players from baseball or go get players from softball. And I've always tried to articulate to people that, as, as somebody who grew up with those sports, anybody who tried to force on me, oh, no, just hold a cricket bat, it's just like baseball. It made me more confused yeah. because I played I played a lot of sports growing up, but one of them okay. I played the longest was tennis, and I used to teach junior uh, tennis lessons at the local tennis oh, club in nice. town. And the technique for tennis, I always found, was the most transferable to cricket, tennis and ice hockey. I completely agree, yeah. Because at a basic level, tennis and cricket are the only two sports where you're playing the ball off the bounce. So you have to be able to read and adjust to the speed of the ball coming off the court if it's a grass court versus a clay court versus a hard court. And just training your eye to read the wrist position when a player is hitting the ball so you can recognize mm-hmm. topspin or backspin. And so you read the wrist position of a bowler that carries over from tennis to cricket. And I'm just curious, I know you're being modest, but in terms of your development as a junior uh, athlete, how much of these things did you feel impact your ability to transition and develop as a cricketer, having had that early training in tennis? Yeah. I mean, I never really put two and two together, I guess, mainly in terms of hand-eye coordination. I think that's probably the biggest area. I remember as a kid, obviously my sisters weren't very sporty, I would just sit in the in the backyard for hours, just bouncing a tennis racket and a ball against the against the back wall of the house for hours. I would just entertain myself that way. So I'm not sure in terms of movement. I know like I've worked with um, S and Cs who have a tennis background, and you know in terms of a ready position, a set position, it's very similar to receiving a serve, and the same as your fielding set position. And you know serving is the almost kind of replicating multiple bowling actions. So I've you know I've heard people talk about their research from that point of view, but. As a kid, I think it was purely just the enjoyment. And yeah, I love all racket sports. Really, I like playing squash. I've heard squash is brilliant for, for cricketers uh, in terms of fitness and particularly like reverse sweeping and kind of flicky, flicky wrist shots. So yeah, I love all, all racket sports. So maybe, yeah, on, a, on a, another level, it did maybe transfer. But um, I, don't think, I don't think it was down to that. My, my tennis is very average. And you're talking about all these things in terms of hitting a, a racket and a ball against the wall at home and all that obviously your your first uh primary discipline now is bowling but growing up were you more of a batter growing up or an all-rounder or how did your skills develop over time I think I was a bit of both really I love doing both probably I I remember as a junior scoring quite a few runs as a kid unfortunately it's not happened yet in my career so far but um I just remember wanting to do everything as a kid I even wanted to wicket keep um I always wanted to be in the game so I think I batted quite high up the order uh, for county stuff open the bowling or was always first change um and just want to do as much as possible and, and be involved in the game really now you talked about Horsham and believe it or not on Cricket Archive your oh your very first scorecard with oh, Horsham wow. is listed here May 9th oh my gosh. 2010 so you would have been oh, wow. 11 years old just a month short of of your 12th birthday 
playing for Horsham. Oh for, the, for the Horsham women. You bowled four overs, one maiden, none for 16. And then nice. you came in at number nine and scored 12 of 16 balls with hey, two boundaries. That's not a bad game. Oh, wow. I'll tell you what, that's oh. not a bad game. As, as an 11 year old, Mexico. I would say so. As an 11 year old, that's that's pretty good. Um, <laughs> what do you remember about your initial, I guess, club cricket experiences? I don't actually remember my first game for Horsham. I do remember the transition going from softball to hardball. Obviously, playing softball, that's how I first started playing. Um, and then they said, Yeah, you're going to play the women's now, they play hardball. And I remember sort of going through the whole phase that every, every kid does, um, trying the pads on, not being able to run the pads, putting a helmet on, thinking it's the heaviest thing in the world and I remember the ball obviously being different weight from softball to highball the first ball I ever bowled with a highball was at the women's training net so I was obviously trying to impress them obviously really nervous as well and the weight of the ball I don't know but anyway the first ball I bowled went over the nets like landed on top of the nets and I was so embarrassed and they said oh don't worry like it's just the weight of the ball you'll get used to it but um yeah I was so nervous <laughs> and obviously I don't know what happened but yeah it actually landed on the top of the nets and I had to wait till the end of the session to get it down so that's all I really remember. But yeah, I think from then, I don't think that happened too many times, hopefully. Well, if you made it this far, I would, I would guess not. <laughs> That'd be my guess. But after that, Horseman, and that's the first official scorecard for Horseman we have. I don't okay. know if you if played before then. But what's remarkable is three weeks after that, just a week short of your 12th birthday, you made your Sussex under 13s women's debut against Essex. You played at Garen Park in South End oh, on Sea. Park. Garen Park is the windiest ground you'll ever play at or watch at. It's just a bowl. It is freezing. It could be, it had its own micro, microclimate. It could be 30 degrees outside the ground, but Garen Park will be at least 12 degrees windy, rainy, the lot. And in May, I'd imagine it's even worse. Yeah, freezing. That's what I remember about Garen Park. But good tees. They did good tees. So, well, that's that's important. Well, we might that's have, the main that, thing. That's we might have that question later, Tara. Okay. If you, if you paid attention to the favorite 11 with Carl Sandry, it could be coming up. You made your debut. You opened the bowling, took one for six in three overs. Even more impressive, you batted at number three and you scored 42. You top scored with 42. In the Sussex under 13 women's five wicket win, you chased a target of 121 with two overs to spare, and you top scored in that match. What do you remember about that day? You know, I actually remember that game, and my captain said, Do you want to open? I said, No, I don't want to open. I don't know why I said that. She said, Okay, you're going three. And I was like, I remember being so nervous not wanting to bat. And they said, No, Tara, you're going three. And yeah, obviously, I obviously batted all right. What do I remember? That's it, I think. I just remember being a cold day just freezing cold yeah no that's not bad that's a great start at what stage did you start to treat cricket as a serious ambition along this journey would it have been around there or was there some other match or some other sequence or moment or maybe a, a season that you can think of that where you said all right this isn't just something I, i'm doing for fun and to have uh, as a social thing or play friends with uh this is something that i actually am thinking about pursuing for the long haul I think probably at that age, it was purely about enjoyment. And obviously, especially the early, early days, it was more a way for me to meet friends and kind of have that relationship and, and be involved in, in an after-school club, that kind of thing. Um, and obviously enjoyed it as well. But 
it wasn't really until I was exposed to more female cricketers. I had no idea there was an England women's team. Um, so when I met, obviously, Sarah Taylor is a, is a Sussex girl. She would do some visits to training sessions. And I was just being in awe. Um, I remember watching an England women's match when Charlotte Edwards was captain at the time. And yeah, just being amazed and thinking, wow, like, I want to do this. I want to play professional cricket. This is amazing, you know, having no idea there was a team, a women's team. I think they'd just come professional then as well. Or maybe it wasn't until 2014 they went professional. Yeah, so probably 12, 13, 14, thinking, yeah, I'm going to give this a good go. And then probably it wasn't really until I was put in the Sussex Academy, which was just sort of more intense training and, and more essencing and gym work. Um, I was pretty unfit as a kid. I just love playing and love leading teas, so I didn't worry too much about the the SNC point of view. So yeah, probably when I was on the Sussex pathway at 15, 16, thinking, oh, it's just called the EPP then, but same thing. Yeah, I remember thinking I'm going to give this a good go and and knuckle down and, and see where this takes me. As part of that pathway, when you said you, you were put into the Sussex Academy and then you're exposed to all these things to get a, cricket being taken a little bit more seriously, one of the other things that comes up through the statistical research is you were part of the England Women's Development Program. There was a group of academy teams that were put together and you got to play with and against some pretty well-known names or established names because the England Women's Cricket Development has has gone on. Some of the names that I think people might recognize from the early games that you played with, which would have been back in 2013. So at this stage, you would have been about 15 years old. A couple of names that stand out to me, Ellie Threlkeld and Sophie Eccleston are the players. You you were on the same team as Sophie. I don't know if they mix and match players yeah. over the course of the academy, but at one stage, you're at least definitely a teenager. Yeah, so. I do remember that. So what was it like rubbing shoulders? Obviously, this time, you're not thinking like, oh, I'm going to be playing with somebody who's going to go up to here, 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 and you're all with the same goal in mind. But what do you remember about those experiences and the level of competition at a time, like you said, where women's cricket at a senior level is just becoming professionalized and these opportunities at a junior level for girls and women were just starting to kind of elevate at the time that you were coming up through the system yeah I remember that you speak all the super fours those tournaments so they would get they'd make four teams of supposedly the best at the time cricketers of that age group you'd go to a private school for the week you'd board in the houses there that you know you're eating together, you're hanging out in the evenings and they're playing games, I don't know, there might be two T20s, 250 overs, that kind of thing. And you're all, you've all got the most horrific kit you've ever seen in your life. Loads of just really unflattering colours and mix and matches, all oversized kit. But um, I just remember it being just the best week ever, just playing cricket with your mates, away from your parents, playing some decent level cricket as well. And actually, I remember Sophie Eccleston on my team and I remember she took this outrageous catch uh, in the ring and I remember thinking, oh my gosh, she's obviously... Uh, a couple of years younger than me but I remember even then thinking oh my gosh this girl can play um so yeah it's nice to see how well she's doing now and yeah Ellie Threlkeld I'm, I'm really good mates with her now even still Sophie Dunkley as well who's an absolute international superstar at the moment yeah all grew up with them playing with them so yeah I remember being just the time of my life really not even thinking really about the pressure obviously it was basically a selection process but at the time it was just a week away playing some cricket and, and being away from home Sophie Dunkley, yeah, it's another name I, I didn't come across when I was scanning the scorecard. Yeah, but she was obviously there as well. A number of illustrious names. So you had that experience again early on in, in your time, 2013. And then just a year later, actually, would have been a month <laughs> short of your 16th birthday. You made your Sussex 
senior team debut against Warwickshire at Kima Road. Kima Road. How do you pronounce that? In Do you know? I remember that game actually. Made your debut at Kima Road in Ditchling. You got a thanks for coming, which is very, oh, very uh, similar, similar to it's similar to Shabani Bhaskar. Now Shabani Bhaskar, I don't know if you were. She uh, made her debut for I think Tamil Nadu when she was um, growing up playing her developmental cricket in India. Her parents working for the embassy or her dad was working for the embassy at least and so she traveled around the world and at that time she was based in Tamil Nadu and she's based in Chennai now but she had a very similar experience she was playing with all these very illustrious names in the Indian uh, state setup who Indian international cricket and I, I'm pretty sure sure uh Shabani Vasco she got a thanks for coming too but yeah, she was big TFC it's a hey, I've, I've gotten my fair it share happens. of those yeah me, yeah me too there's plenty more to come after that I'm sure good old TFC like you said but just being able to take the field and rub shoulders, whether it was teammates or on the opposite side of the field, Warwickshire, Amy Jones was on the opposite side of the field, Georgia Elvis as a Sussex teammate, Georgia Adams, like you said, Sarah Taylor, who was, you mentioned before, somebody who was essentially an idol as a, an international star, is, who was the Sussex captain uh, for you that day, Aaron Brindle. So you were playing in a pretty stacked lineup. So a TFC yeah, a on, on a day like that, it's kind of understandable. But what was, what was that experience yeah, like for you? Off. Do you know, I remember the morning of the head coach pulling me aside and saying, you're going to make your debut today. And I just remember being so nervous. Um, obviously, yeah, I was playing with, I mean, at the time, county cricket was amazing back then. If you weren't playing, it was essentially almost how it, the regional cricket is. It was really good level cricket. All your international superstars were playing county cricket. You know, it was a big deal. And the same as club cricket. Club cricket was really good. You still had international players playing club cricket. So yeah, I remember stepping onto the, on the pitch with the players, like you said, George Elwes, Sarah Taylor, Aaron Brindle, who was terrifying. I was just terrified to make a mistake because <laughs> um, I knew she'd tell me off. Holly Colvin as well. So, yeah, I think it's probably a good thing I, I didn't bowl all that. I'm sure I was extremely nervous. What else do you remember about your experiences, I guess, at that point of your career as a teenager? At what stage would you say you got over the nervousness or the, the that those kind of raw feelings to the point where you started to feel like hey I actually belong here yeah I think uh, growing up I you know I've been 12th man for a lot of seasons I remember going to Yorkshire and Lancashire away for a weekend and not playing a game um you know just doing my job as 12thers which is you know something which every kid every cricketer is going to go through every athlete will go through um and I kind of guess those experiences being around the team whether you're playing or not um you know I established my role and I you know I still felt valued and I think it was probably a more of an identity thing of knowing what my role in the team was um and my skill and obviously I was still developing I was you know 16 at the time um still had a lot to learn and even now have so much more to learn so yeah I guess it's kind of something which everyone goes through but just being around the team really helped and you know not being so starstruck by the likes of those international players and you know just being on the field with them definitely helped Today's episode of the Stars and Stripes Cricket Podcast presented by Dream Cricket is also sponsored by Musa Cricket Stadium, the first and original turf wicket facility in the state of Texas, and now one of the premier venues for the minor league cricket T20 franchise tournament. Located at 5515 McKeever Road in Pearland, five miles off the Bailey Road exit from State Route 288 and a half hour south of downtown Houston, Musa Cricket Stadium includes fully enclosed locker rooms and change rooms plus shower facilities after day's play, as well as outdoor nets for all your training needs. For more information, call 713-534-2195. That's Musa Cricket Stadium in Pearland, Texas. One of the other things as part of your developmental journey towards professional cricket, you spent 
a, at least one summer and maybe two summers in Australia. Now, this is quite, quite a common thing for a lot of male cricketers to do, spend northern hemisphere winter down in either Australia or South Africa or New Zealand. But yeah. it's not something I've heard an awful lot of female cricketers do. And I'm quite fascinated how the opportunity came about for you. Who, who planted the seed in your mind? Or was it something you pursued on your own? And how did it came, come about? And how were you connected with Peron Cricket Club in Victoria? Yeah, God, that was um, five years ago now, which is kind of scary. I just remember finishing up my A-levels and thinking, I'm done with education. I am never going to uni. I'm done with studying. Um, I'm going to go away. I'm going to go for the winter. I'm going to play some cricket. And then I'm going to come back and assess what I'm going to do with my life. Um, and kind of sort of in a small women's cricket world in the UK, that was kind of what people did. You would go away for the winter, exactly like you said, the men do. So I emailed a bunch of clubs. Um, a lot of them didn't get back to me. I had no idea when, where I wanted to go. And one of my really good friends, Naomi Titani, the year before had been to Paran. Um, so I just sent her a message and said, hey, I've seen you went to Australia last year. What was it like? What's the club like? Have you got any contact details? So I emailed the club. They got back to me really quickly. And yeah, they said, look, yeah, come out. We'd love to have you. You know, I was 18 at the time. Didn't really know what I was going to get myself into. Um, just know that I wanted to get away, play some cricket and do a bit of traveling. Um, so yeah, I went out, uh, oh God, September, 2016, uh, for the winter and just had the most incredible time. Um, and, you know, learned a lot as a cricketer, as a person as well, being away from home, lived with Nova Tani as well, play, played the same club, met some really cool people out there, Carl Sandry, who was a coach at the time and like some Annabelle Sutherland as well, playing with her as, I think she was 16 at the time when I met her and obviously, yeah, she's an absolute superstar now. So yeah, it was the most incredible time and to be able to travel as well and, and have a bit of freedom as a kid was, um, yeah, everything I dreamed of. You mentioned quite a few names there. Naomi Datani, I know, was one of your teammates for the 100 this past summer, I believe, and uh, an established player in the in the setup. One of the names you didn't mention, uh, you you came across in Australia. Uh, you're, you're starting to grin for people who can't see the screen. Uh, I don't know if you know where I'm going with this, but there's an article in the Herald Sun dated February 5th, 2017. <laughs> And oh, that was a good day. It was a good day. I would say so. Yes. Peran. How, how do you say it? Peran? Peran? Peran. You need to say it with an Aussie accent. It helps. Peran. 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 There you go. Okay. Peran. Yes. Peran wins women's premier 2020 grand final against Box Hill. And then the subheadline: Tara Norris almost single-handedly won the women's premier cricket 2020 final for Peran. On- That's very generous on saturday well you're being you're being modest but the further down we go you took the wicket of meg lanning is that correct i did yeah meg Caught lanning well you got you got the double lanning. You got the lanning double I meg did. and anna lanning you got them both it's it's Do here i remember that lanning who claimed her third belinda clark award as australia's best women's cricketer last month was removed for two as Paran scored a comfortable seven-wicket win. After being sent into bat, Tara Norris made the pivotal breakthrough. She also removed Meg's sister, Anna, Rebecca Carter, claiming the first three wickets to lead Box Hill, three for 28. Take me through that day. It was a hot day. It was absolutely roasting. It must have been 30-plus degrees, and obviously, being from England, I'm not used to that kind of heat. <laughs> yeah, it was a big T20 final. I don't think Paran had ever won a T20 comp for a while, maybe. And, you know, I was actually working a second job. Well, I was working quite a few jobs out there. 
So I think I'd been coaching at a school that morning. Maybe done like a 7 till 10 a.m. coaching shift. Scrammed some food. Got on the train to the game. I can't remember what the game was actually. Um, but it was a hot day. And yeah, took an early wicket. Took my lane's wicket. Actually wasn't an amazing ball. But yeah, caught short third. I didn't know what she was trying to do. So yeah, that was just the most ecstatic feeling ever. And just being around the team. And then, I don't know why. I hadn't batted at three. I think I batted at three. I hadn't batted much throughout the whole comp. And for some reason, they said, you're going to bat three today. We want a left-hand, right-hand combo. So it must have been Naomi Tatani was opening. And they said, right, if the lefty gets out, you're in. If righty gets out, don't worry about it. So, yeah, before I know it, I'm walking out to bat. I can't remember what we're chasing. But, yeah, I remember batting with Emma Ingalls and then just sort of finishing the game off, really. And it was, yeah, lots of celebrations after. And I think as well, Aussie cricket it can be pretty ruthless. You've really got to prove yourself to the teammates, especially in overseas. So being 18 and quite naive, I don't think I probably found myself in that team until that day. So I remember after that, I felt a little bit more, almost like I'd earned my place in the team and kind of respected in, in the group and at the club. So yeah, that game was a massive shift point and a massive confidence boost for me. Um, and a, definitely a day which I'll remember forever. I've still got the medal uh, in my room back home in England. I'm sure my my dad's got the, the news article clip somewhere. Um, yeah, no, it was it was crazy. So you took that big haul and then you finished 30 not out with four boundaries. You had an all-around performance that day. In terms of confidence boost, like you said, but also the elevated expectations, whether that's placed on you by somebody else or you personally start to set bigger goals for yourself. When you come off of that, whether it's grade cricket, some other form of cricket, and you get somebody like Meg Lanning out, like, like the article says, three-time Belinda Clark medal winner, what does that do for you mentally in terms of how you start approach cricket going forward I think it's just that sense of belief belief that I've done this before okay she might be the best friend in the world but I'm going to give this a good go I'm going to trust myself and and yeah for me it's just a massive belief in my ability confidence is probably something which I've always struggled with from a cricket point of view so moments like that getting those wickets of key players in various tournaments you just need to bank them and put them in a safe place because sometimes you know when you're going through those dark phases you know you need to remember those those successful moments and they go so quick, those moments. So for me, it's about enjoying, you know, those very rare moments and, and always sort of referring back to them whenever you need them. You have that, those moments in Australia, like you said, and then you come back to England with the Sussex setup. This past year, I believe you said, was your first year as a fully professional contracted cricketer with Sussex. So you, you talked, you kind of touched on it a little bit about it. You didn't want to be pursuing school in a, on a serious way going forward <laughs> yeah. longer than you had to. So yeah. these years, 18, 19, 20, where you're, do you need to go to university? Do you want to go to university? Is it something that's, that's actually makes sense? Spending your northern winter in Australia, there's like a turning point there in terms of, am I going to make it or do I need to have a backup plan? At what point did you feel like, you were within touching distance where a professional career was a legitimate reality for you yeah I think so even then kind of in the women's in the women's game to play for England or to play professional cricket you had to play for England and to play for England you had to go to Loughborough University that was basically what it was um Loughborough has the it's the home national ground the home national change facility the ECB change facility um it's where every pretty much 90 percent of England female cricketers went they all went to Loughborough Uni so I remember having a conversation with my dad thinking do I go back to Australia for 
and do a third season, a third consecutive season? Or shall I give it a good go, invest three years and try and come out of some kind of contract? Having no, you know, no idea about these regional contracts in three, four years time. Um, so after saying, yeah, I'm done with education, I'm not going. I signed the deadline and I signed up for three years of university, um, got myself to Loughborough. Um, I was actually on the, the EWDP under-19s academy, so whilst I was away, so had been exposed to all this amazing training, facilities, coaching, and then when I arrived at uni, I was dropped from the squad, wasn't selected for the under-19s programme, and the coach, the EWDP coach and the Loughborough University head coach, Sal Briggs at the time, who is now Hobart Hurricanes head coach, said to me, look, you're not in the squad, but you're at the right place. Uh, and I remember, and I well, think I'll remember the, always remember these words. She said, look, if you want it, it's all here for you to grab. Um, the facilities, the coaches, everything, it's all here for you to have. So if you want it, it's yours, but you've got to work for it. So I think after being dropped from that, I just had this hunger. Um, so for the next three years, or probably for the next year, I worked hard, tried to attempt some studies. And yeah, a year later, I was kind of got picked up for an England Academy tour um, to South Africa which obviously I wasn't in the squad. I wasn't even up for selection, but just being at Loughborough, coaches had seen me train on my own and go in and get overs in and, you know, train about, go about my normal business kind of thing. So that was kind of a massive curveball for me, really, something I wasn't expecting and something which made me realise, actually, if I work hard, I'm going to get rewarded. So, yeah, I went on that tour and, and that was just incredible and to be in that environment. And I remember thinking, yeah, I'd, I can get used to this I, I want some more of this and it kind of just kept fueling the fire so yeah three years of university obviously it wasn't until I was finishing my dissertation in my last year at uni uh, last summer in the pandemic and we had a zoom call every single female cricketer um, was on this zoom call about these domestic contracts and I remember group chats going off people messaging people saying you know what's going on are these contracts going to happen because of the pandemic where's the budget coming from you know what's going to happen is there going to be a cricket season and then as I'm pretty much my final week of trying to bash out my dissertation uh, I get a phone call from Adam Carty the Vipers director uh, offering me a retainer contract which I never was expecting uh, especially a retainer contract which was you know pretty rare to get so yeah pretty much the the day I handed my dissertation and I'd sign my my contract for the Vipers so yeah the three-year investment in uni paid off I have no idea how but yeah in my head it was always well do I want to work full-time or should I really give this a go um I had no idea what other path or route I would have taken for me it was just cricket so yeah obviously it's it's, it's paid off thankfully and I'm very very happy and grateful that it has so yeah that was that was again just one of those curveball moments sat down thinking which path do I take I guess what did you do your degree in at Loughborough um, it was sports science and management. It's a classic Loughborough, not short to do with your life. Let's just go for sports science and see what happens. Let me go back a bit to one of the things you touched on there in your previous answer, getting dropped or being left out of an under 19 squad. I encountered this a lot with parents and players in and around the U.S., especially in the, the boys setup. There hasn't really been a girls under 19 setup until very, very recently. They tried to start the girls under 19 national championships for the first time this past summer. But up until then, there hasn't really been any girls development pathway in junior setup in that sense. But in the boys setup, what I find a lot over the years in America is that if a player does not get picked for USA under 19, then they feel like cricket almost isn't worth playing anymore and they want to give up and it's, it's you know, sky is falling. Everything's finished. Where, where am I going to go? If I can't make us in our 19, well, then I definitely don't have a shot 
at the U.S. senior team if I can't even make U.S. under 19. And what gets lost in that is that there's so much development that is still happening from 18-19 to 21-22-23. And there are a handful of players that I have come across who, rather than having this sky is falling mentality, it becomes a huge, huge source of motivation that it lights a fire under them. They take it as a slight. Instead of it being, oh, I've, I've been talented, I've worked, and oh, I, I've made every step of the way, and I tick the boxes, and oh, this is just the next step. It's a blow to the ego, for one thing. Oh, my God, like, I'm not that great. Like, I still have to actually have to work a little bit hard. Nothing's yeah. going to be handed to me. And some people, that blow to the ego, it's like, oh, it's not worth playing anymore. I don't want to play. This is, I can't, I can't handle this. And other people, it's, it's just, it drives them harder. For you, it sounds like you're in the latter group where instead of you taking it as a huge negative, it was a very motivating reinforcement uh, moment in your career to where you are today. What was it about that experience and how you reacted besides what you've mentioned about the coaches who, who talked to you and tried to give you uh, some encouragement, motivation? What is it about that experience that you felt has allowed you to improve, to keep going to the point where you were able to secure a professional contract? Yeah, I think it was um, probably one of the best things that ever happened, actually. Um, when you're on one of those kinds of programs, you've got everything handed to you on a silver platter, pretty much. You've got everything s and c people in contact with you most days checking in on things everyone monitoring your you know every bit of development so being off that program and i had to take a lot of ownership which i think is a massive bonus for a lot of players um i do a bit of coaching now and any player that i coach who has a sense of their own game awareness i know they're going to make it a long way obviously being at loughborough i was also on an mcc program so again that's probably the second best winter program you can ever be involved in so I was taken care of in that point of view, but in terms of understanding my own game and what I wanted to achieve and, and how I was going to go about it, I had to take a lot more ownership and responsibility, which I think is probably what helped me get closer and closer. But yeah, saying that the MCC program was absolutely brilliant. And I think the people I was around as well, uh, my first year of uni, I was in an amazing squad um, of a cricket team. And I think being around like-minded people, I was obviously living with Sophia Dunkley and Ali Ferrell-Held. Obviously that was when when Dunks wasn't quite a superstar just yet. Um, but being around those players who want the same thing and we kind of just drove each other and, and bounced ideas off each other and, you know, it would be things like running at 7.30 in the morning, which obviously no one wants to do, especially in an English winter. But getting people around that, doing it for each other and, and dragging your mates through the tough times. Um, for me, that's probably where the biggest areas have changed for my cricket career and and where the drive came from, having people push me and, and vice versa. Yeah, being around those people, surround yourself with those kinds of people. One of the other things you mentioned about that experience, getting dropped initially, but then being included as part of a South Africa tour, playing for the England Academy is how it was labeled. Played against in South Africa, and you also played against an Australia under-19 team as part of the Tri-Series. And I know you mentioned Annabelle Sutherland before as one of the players you played around in Victoria when you played uh, for Peron. Annabelle Sutherland was in that Australia under-19s team. Yes, she was. Georgia Wareham was also in there, Taylor Lamink. And then for the England team that you played with, it was captained by Holly Armitage. And then Charlotte Dean, Sophia Dunkley, as you said, Emma Lamb, Sarah Glenn, Ellie Threlkeld, and you were part of that squad as well. What do you remember about that as being one of your first, I guess, major touring experiences going abroad with part of an England setup? Yeah, I remember being... Um... It was a lot of fun. Um, I don't think we did brilliant as a cricket side, unfortunately. I also remember, for some reason, 
the other two teams were in these really nice swanky hotels in quite a safe part of Pretoria. And I don't know why, but for some reason we were in sort of, we were basically in the city and we had a security guard with us, a, you know, a, he was looking after us, but I remember being in this hotel and <laughs> I don't know what happened, but yeah, it wasn't the safest place to be. Um, so we had a few little issues there, but for me, I just remember thinking everything right now is a bonus because I'm not even in the squad. And for me, the coaches word it to me, look, you've got a free for all, you've got a free ride. If you go well, great. If you don't go well, there's no expectations. So take it how you take it how you will. So that was kind of for me, I you know, I don't know if other people's experiences on it, but for me that was it was a free trip to try and prove myself basically. Um, and be exposed to that kind of training, that environment, that culture. And yeah, I remember I said to the head coach, we kind of had reviews at the end of the tour. And I just said, yeah, like, what happens now? You know, what's the plan now? Am I going to play games? And probably being quite annoying, actually. And just thinking, yeah, I've, I've had a little taste of it and I want more. Um, so, you know, what do I do? What do I have to do to, to come back? What do I have to do for you to call me again um, and get me in a squad? So, yeah, probably quite irritating, actually. But I remember then that being, yeah, another kind of little moment for me to think, yeah, I can go one step above this. And part of that one step above, again, securing a professional contract. So being part of the Sussex Edic and the Southern Vipers. And even though 2021 was your first year as a fully contracted player, you've been, again, part of the squad for quite some time in the Sussex setup. You played before the 100. You played in the Kia Super League and you played in the Rachel Hayhoe Flint Trophy for the Southern Vipers. And, and in the Kia Super League, actually, I believe you were with the Loughborough Lightning. I did, yeah as part of the setup there when you were still, I guess, attending uni. In terms of those experiences in the new era of the women's professional setup prior to the 100, and I do want to ask you about the 100 as well, but prior to the 100, some of these other things, how would you evaluate your own personal experiences and how would you evaluate the standard of the entire setup compared to what you had experienced previously on the pathway? Yeah, it was, again, it's another step up. The Kia Super League was brilliant. You know, you're playing against international players. You're playing with and against. You're training with them. You know, the likes of training with Sophie Devine, uh, Mignon Dupree, God, I can't even name them all, but to play in different teams as well. It was a massive step up, something that I'd never experienced or been exposed to. I remember it being quite intense for weeks. Obviously, you're traveling, you're training, you're playing. I was still at uni, but yeah, 18, 19 at the time. And yeah, just being starstruck to be able to play with these amazing players. Personally, I, you know, I think I was involved for three years in the Kia, Kia Super League, and I think I played four games. Um, so again, I never had a major role in the KSL, um, which is why getting a contract as well was, you know, just incredible because, you know, in my eyes, I was probably a nobody. Um, had it done loads in semi-pro cricket. I guess one thing going for that was left-handed, had a slight point of difference. But for me, again, that's another reason I've, you know, there's a lot of frustration about being left out of squads and not playing and, you know, wanting it just so badly. That being in the Vipers environment is probably the first time that I've had a secure role and known my place. Whereas, yeah, in the KSL, I mean, I was, again, I was a nobody, played very little. All my, you know, all my friends, all my best mates were playing pretty much every game. So again, for me, that was just even more fuel to the fire, basically to try and get a gig and you know even with 100 I wasn't expecting a gig based on my KSL career so yeah to be in the Vipers environment and to be you know valued as a player and and really looked after and, and nurtured in that kind of sense is yeah you know I'm 23 and this is probably the first time I've I've ever really been 
secure in a position for, for, a, for a full season. You talk about the difference between T20 form and form in, in the other formats. You had only played, like you said, only four games in the Q Super League, one in 2017 and, and three in 2019. You were much more successful in the Rachel Hayhoe Flint Trophy, especially last summer. You were second on the Southern Vipers in wickets. Uh, you had 12 for the Vipers, and that was three behind the team leader, Charlotte Taylor. But you've got some other names in the squad, and, and you performed quite respectably amongst those, but it was a different format. So how much stock do you think some of the evaluators put into what they were seeing in the other formats to have that belief that you were worth taking a chance on, not just as a full-time contracted player with the Vipers, but by extension, getting a gig in the 100? Yeah, um, yeah, I guess I'm not sure, really. Um, I'd like to think a lot of it's character and attitude. I, you know, I'd like to think I'm a really hard worker and whatever I do, I, you know, I put all my effort into it. Um, so I think work ethic wise, a lot of coaches might have looked out for that. And I guess, yeah, the point of difference being left-handed bowler and batter, especially in T20 cricket, you know, just watching the men's T20, um, you always want to have a leggy and a left-handed bowler. So yeah, that was probably a, a blessing really. And I guess it's just context as well, you know, being in different teams and, and having a good uh, reputation, I guess. Um, so yeah, very fortunate in that sense, for sure. This past summer, getting a chance to be part of the Southern Brave again, I guess the next step is the your experiences in the 100, an elevated standard because you've got fewer teams, you've got more overseas players being allowed to come in and be part of the squads. So for you, being able to be a teammate of Smriti Mandana, and Stefani Taylor of the West Indies, who is, again, a marquee player in your side. So two pretty big international names. I don't want to leave her out. Amanda Jade Wellington, too. She's, she's you in can't her. leave Wallow out. Yeah. Uh, so you had, you had a pretty stacked roster. Danny Wyatt's in there. Sophia Dunkley. Uh, so, yeah, a very good team. <laughs> deep roster, to say the least. With all the about the hundred and why are they tearing up the established way of doing things and this hundred is pointless i think one of the things that was celebrated about the hundred was its impact on women's cricket specifically it seemed like it did a huge amount for the exposure having those double headers side by side with women and men were were playing at the same venue and that extra exposure uh for the women was significant and the attention and and just the recognition of the standard of play like I said, a lot of people were not so high on the 100 beforehand, but for you getting a chance to be part of it and the experiences that you got to go through over the course of the summer, what was the 100 like from your perspective? Yeah, I mean, I thought the KSL was brilliant, but oh my gosh, the 100 was, it was next level. It was amazing for both the men's and women's game. I think the biggest thing was the crowds. You know, no way would I have dreamt of playing in front of 26,000 people. Uh, in a hundred final game, which is just absurd, really, for a domestic player. For, again, for a nobody, really, to to be in that situation was just crazy, uh, especially at Lords. And yeah, just in terms of for the women's game, um, the awareness. You know, I had people messaging me who I'd not spoken to for years, saying, "I've never liked cricket. I've never watched in my life, but I love the hundred. And actually, I got a. I've had a lot of good feedback. I don't think I heard a lot of negative stuff, apart from maybe potentially slightly older, more traditional cricket fans, but. You know, I had so many amazing, lovely messages um, from people who absolutely love the 100. Just watching young girls who had, you know, Lauren Bell t-shirts on or Sophia Dunkley t-shirts on. They didn't want the men's tops, one of the women's tops. 
Um, it was just brilliant. And there was one moment when, obviously, it was a double header, uh, which worked so, so well. There was a moment when kind of half the players were walking back to our hotel and we walked by the ground. And all of a sudden, the crowd stands up, starts cheering, starts applauding, starts whistling, doing everything. And we sort of are looking around, thinking, oh, like, has there been a boundary? Like, what are they cheering for? Uh, and they were cheering for us. And it's one of those moments which was very naive of us and quite sweet and innocent, really, thinking, oh, my gosh, they're cheering for us. Like, that's crazy. And so for the next few home games, every time we walked back to the hotel, we said, no, no, let, let's go this way, just because it was just so much fun. And again, just having that, again, we were, you know, we're just county domestic cricketers. Um, but you see people with signs with your names on. Even to speaking to the England girls, they said, you know, we would never get a crowd like this, even for an international game which is just crazy. And the stats for the audiences and the crowds that we had were just, God, it's just amazing what the game did, you know, particularly for the women's game and the awareness, you know, and I, I hope that it just continues to go to, to progress. And yeah, the doubleheaders work so well. Um, and having, I think, having a franchise linked to the men as well really helped the game. And I think just the amount of funding and marketing that was put into it, it couldn't not go well. I know there's a lot of sceptical and, and some, um, you know, some, people not the biggest fan of it to start with but the amount of money they invested and and the way it was so it was so ran so well and the marketing behind it 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 was brilliant yeah it was an amazing opportunity amazing experience and hopefully it's it's something I can be involved with for a few years are you a palm bear loyalist for life now do you know we didn't get any palm bears um what maybe I know maybe that's the one flaw there was, yeah, no pom bears, not a pom bear in sight, actually. Look, playing for the Brave was absolutely amazing. I would love to play for the Brave again. Um, but I think what's really exciting about this is that there's the opportunity with the money as well that you can chop and change. And it's very flexible. You know, it's a four-week comp. You can play for a different team. You could play up north, down south, you know, wherever. But yeah, playing for playing for the pom bears for the Brave was absolutely brilliant. And obviously, you know, being, playing under Charlotte Edwards as well, he's my Vipers, my Vipers coach as well, was very special and yeah, being, being on her team is, is one of the best things ever. I want to ask about Charlotte Edwards. There's a yeah. few points about her. But before that, one other quick point, again, going on a thing you raised in the previous answer, before the Palm Bear reference, <laughs> review who are not aware, Palm Bears was the snack, the crisp brand that was on the front That's of the Southern so. Brave jersey. You mentioned Lords. You had never played there before this summer. There was no, the group stage match against the London Spirit and then the final against the Invincibles. You've mentioned the crowds. Being able to play at Lords, not just Lords, but being able to play at Lords in front of a huge crowd. Give us a sense of the kind of crowds, if there were any, that you were playing in front of in your previous seasons and then the transformation that took place this past summer. And, and just mentally, what is that like to go from the crowds or lack thereof before this past summer and being able to play in front of the crowds were you able to tune it out and block it out and just focus on the task game or what, or did you catch yourself at times going, Oh my God, where did all these people come from? And I better perform or else who knows who's watching. Yeah. The crowds aren't forgiving at all. They're not forgiving. <laughs> yeah. I rec- I think previously, maybe the most I've ever played in front of is maybe 6,000 people at Hove for a KSL final, which again, I came on as like a, a fielder sub for a play that had to go off. So I was maybe there for like 10 overs. I was thinking for an evening game, thinking, wow, this is this is pretty cool. And then obviously because of the pandemic, we'd played a whole summer without crowds, you know, family weren't even allowed to come on the ground, which was a massive shame. So I think 
maybe because of that as well, it was just an added bonus of, oh my gosh, there's 26,000 people here. Or I think the first game at Trent Bridge might have been 16,000 people. I remember thinking, oh my gosh, this is so cool. It was so loud. There was music going on and being on the pitch. I mean, there's a lot of noise, but it's good noise. It's good energy. And I think the crowd picks up the energy really well. So it, you know, I, I thought it was brilliant. I love being around it. And yeah, the Lord's final was just crazy. You know, having my parents and my, my sister there was was really special. They don't get to watch me often. So the fact that they were there watching me at Lords, which is something which we'd kind of spoken about, you know, for years. I'd said, you know, you're going to watch me play at Lords one day. Just just watch. It was really special. Obviously, it wasn't the result that we wanted. I think, yeah, when the pressure comes on, I remember when I was batting in the final, it was just silence. I'm sure there's a lot of noise, but I don't remember any of that. I just remember just trying to watch the ball. I just remember Danae Van Nier kept bowling at me thinking, right, <laughs> wait for the spin, wait for the spin. And just channeling in and just zoning in for the moment and trying to just trying to hit the ball basically but yeah the noise the the atmosphere is is crazy I, I can't explain it so you heard it from tara not everybody hates the hundred despite what you may read in the press and she's looking forward to year two in the hundred and she's looking forward to more opportunities with the usa national team coming off her inaugural experience in mexico she's with the squad now in zimbabwe and we'll be talking a lot more about her foray into the usa national team rediscovering her american roots and so much more in part two of the interview with tara norris so stay tuned for that coming up next week want to remind everybody if you haven't done so you can subscribe on youtube to get the video format or in audio form you can find the stars and stripes cricket podcast presented by dream cricket on google podcasts apple podcasts spotify anchor fm that's it for this episode i'm peter Delapena, reminding everybody god bless america and god bless american cricket